Hey, Jazz, is this the blessing? <laughs> this is a blessing. Aw, what if the real blessing was the friends we made along the way? Of the two years that we did this podcast? Oh, yeah, that definitely that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just making a friends along the way, that, but yes, you are right. That is exactly, I love that. Lilith, what's something cool or queer or Jewish you did this week? So two things. The less serious one is that I was listening to the podcast Emoji Drome, and they got to the questions section and they were like, this one comes in from Palm Laker on Twitter. And I was like, wait, who stole my Twitter handle? And then I realized that they were reading a question that I had written several weeks ago. Oh my goodness. What was your question? And also tell us a little bit more about how this is a queer or Jewish thing. Emojidrome is a psychosexual journey into the little pictures on our phones in which every episode they talk about an emoji or when there's another like big group of Unicode prototypes, they'll talk about like 20 emoji at once. But yeah, every episode they talk about an emoji and the way that it's displayed on all the different platforms. And this particular episode was the screaming face emoji, (laughs) where like it's kind of blue up top and has like hollowed out eyes and two hands on either side of the screaming face. Uh huh. And this made me think of the movie Scream. Spoilers for Scream for the next like five seconds. The villain is played by Matthew Lillard. And so I asked, which of these emoji is played by Matthew Lillard? And instead of really addressing the scream thing, though Ryan picked up on it, they talked about Scooby-Doo lore because Matthew Lillard also played Shaggy in the live action Scooby-Doo's. Well. Which is great. I feel blessed. (laughs) Couldn't have gone better, frankly. So Emoji Drome is queer because... Ryan is like a gay furry or something, and Sylvia is a trans woman. I got into this podcast through Friends at the Table, but it is like a totally different vibe. (laughs) It's a nice thing to like put on in the background while I'm doing other stuff. And occasionally I'll hear some really cursed things being said about emoji. It's, It's great. Great. And then the... More serious thing is that I was taking a shower recently, and because I recently had surgery, and it was like one of the first times that I was really directly addressing the wound, I said the bracha for immersion and like dunked myself Aww. three times under the running water. <laughs> a mini mikvah. Right? That was fun because I had to really look up what mikvah practices were without any guidance because this was a thing that I was just doing on my own in the shower. And also it's queer because this was a gender affirming surgery to remove gamete producing and hormone producing glands. And so, you know, recovering from that and like making sure to take care of myself cleanlinessly is a Jewish thing. Yeah. And it was just cool. That's very sweet. Yeah. So I wanted to, in our last official episode, the last one that's part of like a regular cycle, just bring something that's particularly Jewish 
and feels like a good hope for the future kind of thing. Yeah. I'm figuring out what my body is like in fourth puberty, I guess? I, um, what? I really think you're still in second puberty. I mean, okay. It's like puberty 3.0, 1.0, thrice upon a puberty. Sure. I really think that going off your hormones for like a few weeks in preparation for a surgery does not constitute a third puberty, but... Okay, it was bad, and I can totally see a bunch more hair on my face that I haven't gotten lasered in like two years because I didn't want to die. (laughs) Okay, all right. Anyway, (laughs) Jazz, what's something cool and queer or Jewish that's happened to you recently? Well, I got to go to an indie printing press locally with a bunch of classmates to cap off the end of my first week of rabbinical school. A bunch of my classmates are queer. Different members of our class experimented with different printing things. One person found a stamp that was just already there that said, the gayest spot in town, and just printed that a handful of times. (laughs) But also our teacher had these incredibly rare Hebrew printing blocks that were probably originally used as part of a Yiddish newspaper. Mm. And we got to make words with them. And we made these incredible pieces of art with the Shema, and also we each got to make our own as well with cool phrases, and I really enjoyed it, and I had a great time. Yeah. And then, like, I've gotten to spend a little bit more time with other classmates, and, like, we went out to lunch together and had a Shabbat dinner together, and they're gonna do some Rosh Hashanah things together, and it's just really lovely. Hmm. We're a good queer group. And I can name all of them now. All of them? You can? Yeah. I did a similar thing when I was meeting your roommates, where I just like really study some pictures with a couple notes from you to be like, okay, I know who this person is, and this person, and this person. I told my classmates that you were learning their names and faces, and they were very charmed by it. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think I am the only person in my cohort with a partner, which is very surprising to me because people in other cohorts are like married with children. And so... Yeah, it's grad school. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, my other queer and Jewish thing that I wanted to share with y'all is that I was trying to sign up for an online High Holidays service Mm -hmm. because I'm able to do some High Holidays stuff outside and mask, but not all of the things. So I was looking into at least one online service. And there was one from an organization which shall remain nameless, which... I was scrolling through and I was registering for and it seemed cool, but they were asking for more information than I thought they should need, like my physical address for this online thing. And then I came to their gender option. And so you know how there are many ways to set up gender questions and like a few of them are like possible right ways to do it, but there's a lot more ways to do it badly. Oh no. This has, I believe, 14 possible. Oh God. Radio buttons. Radio buttons. Okay. (laughs) Which means you can only click one of them. So would you like me to read this list? Well, first I have to pour some water to cool myself off. And now you can read the list. Okay. 
It's labeled gender, parentheses, for demographic purposes. The first two options are CIS female. It's in all caps. Ah, comfortable in skin, of course. The thing that that definitely means. And CIS male. And then the next one is trans hyphen male. Sorry, and not in all caps, to be clear. No, just the T for trans and the M for male. Uh Uh-huh. Unless otherwise specified, every single word or every single thing after a hyphen is capitalized. Okay. So we have trans hyphen female, trans hyphen gender hyphen non hyphen conforming, gender non hyphen binary, intersex, intersex hyphen male identifying, intersex hyphen female identifying, prefer not to say at this time, unsure slash figuring it out. Gender fluid, prefer not to answer, and other. So, the. <laughs> mm. So, <laughs> while I think there are a lot of commonalities between transgender issues and intersex issues, uh, that doesn't extend to intersex being a trans identity. What the hell? What are you doing? Radio buttons? Also, you don't need to know this. Also, you don't need to know this. It's really not relevant. None of this information is relevant for them to know. But also, the idea that these are non-overlapping categories, also the (laughs) idea that this is the right terminology to use. Uh Also, the incredible humor of one button that says prefer not to say at this time and one button that says prefer not to answer. And also gender fluid in between them. And also unsure slash figuring it out in between them. (sighs) Yeah. Anyway. So are you going to this? I don't know. (laughs) I have not decided. Is the gender section on their sign-up form a deciding factor? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I really was much more inclined to go before I saw it. Oof. If they had given me three options and they were like man, woman, non-binary, I still would have been like, that's not amazing. You know, you could do better. But but it's fine and probably relevant for demographic purposes. Right. Also, <laughs> I would have assumed there would have been another one that was like, prefer not to answer, you know, yes. and then I would have been like, not perfect, but that seems fine to collect that kind of like broad basic data. And I don't know what on earth is happening here. <laughs> What demographic? Okay. Anyway, would you like to continue asking the question, is this the blessing? I would. Take us into the episode. One, two, three, four. Welcome to Kosher Queers, a podcast with at least two Jews and generally more than three opinions. Each week we've brought you queer takes on Torah. They're jazz. And she's Lulav. 
And we are here to joke about Judaism and talk Tanakh together. Today, our Chavruta is learning the Haftarah of Vezot HaBracha. Oh, oh, okay. They're answering the question for me. Okay. Which is Yechezkel 38.18 to 39.16. And listener, you may be like, Oh, there are so many prophets that begin with yeh and have some chiz in them. Which one is this? It's Ezekiel, if you are looking through things in English, which most times you are. (laughs) That is absolutely true. (laughs) So Jazz, can you tell us, is this the blessing? Well, it sure is a blessing. (laughs) Can you give me 75 seconds to summarize Mm this final Parsha. Sure thing. That seems reasonable. One minute, 15 seconds, and go. Moses says a long deathbed poem about the future of each of the 12 tribes, which the text calls a blessing, but it is definitely not an equal blessing. He says it to the whole community, so I picture him propped up on a hospital bed, but also at a podium. First, there's some stuff about how God appeared to people with lightning and was awesome, so people followed. And then Moses talks about himself in third person. Reuben's whole blessing is, may you survive, even though there'll never be many of you. And Judah's is like, help him out and get home, even though he's constantly being (laughs) self-destructive. About Levi, the deal is, he's an okay kid. Let him have the tools to do prophecy. He's so loyal, he ignored everyone, even family, to focus on God, which means he's totally suited to being a teacher. Editors note, this is not how it works. (laughs) Benjamin's going to be carried on God's shoulders like a toddler and Joseph gets lush luxurious descriptions about how cool he is and by extension how many people there will be in Ephraim and Manasseh Zebulon and Issachar get grouped together and try and get resources from sand and sea Gad is a vicious lion and judge and Dan is a baby lion kitten Naphtali is fully satiated living in the west coast best coast and also in the south Asher gets blessed with basic home security and seasonings, plus being friends with everyone. Moses wraps up with God being amazing, driving out enemies, giving grain and wine and dew and victory. Finally done talking, Moses goes up Mount Pisgah and sees a gorgeous view, which God tells him is where the Jewish people will live, but not him. And Moses dies alone at age 120 and God buries him in an unmarked grave. The people mourn for a whole month, and then Joshua tells them all to move on, but no one was ever as cool as Moses ever again. <laughs> so that went on for about as many seconds as Moshe did years. <laughs> oh, no. Bless you. <laughs> I like how that worked out. <laughs> Symbolically. <laughs> for instance, this is supposed to be, you know, particularly a blessing, and it doesn't quite live up to that. It's, it's a something. blessing. Yeah, yeah. It's something. <laughs> I don't know if it's Habracha. They do say that it's Habracha because it's the blessing that Moses delivered at this particular time. <laughs> Which, sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so how does that connect to the Haftarah that we have for today? I mean, I think there's stuff in the Haftarah as well about, like, this is what the future is going to be like for the people of Yisrael. And here's how we will have victory from God and what will happen ultimately in the span of Jewish history. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, loving that. 
So I reckon I should give a little bit of context because it's been a while since we had anybody but Yeshayahu. Yeah, tell us about Ezekiel, who we have not heard from in a minute. This is famously the smarmy goth kid. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yechezkel does a lot of performance art, some of which is very obvious. And I think we can maybe conceive of this chapter in that context. It's not necessarily like prophesying a specific thing that's going to happen. It is like constructing a play that is a metaphor for the future of Judaism and of people generally. Hmm. Does that seem fair? Can you spin me another couple of sentences on that one? What do you mean it's constructing a play? Well, Gog is not a specific person, I don't think. Right, yes. I've been looking into this and I'm not really coming up with much other than that Gog equals mountain (laughs) and the prophetic prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and Magog, which like, thanks, yes, I know what I'm reading. This is where the concepts of Gog and Magog come from as far as we know. It's not like Mm -hmm. they existed previously. (laughs) Ezekiel just like made them up and then other people occasionally continued to run with it but honestly not very often because we just don't really talk about the end of days all that much so if you imagine a different america where there was like the big red scares but there wasn't the specific wisconsin senator joseph mccarthy it's like arthur miller coming up on stage with a baseball bat that has mccarthyism written on it and hitting you all over the heads with it what (laughs) Which is to say, like many of Yechezkel's bits, it is very heavy-handed. Yes. But also artful. I don't know. I liked being in the Crucible. (laughs) It was fun. Okay. Sorry, in the first episode where we talked about Yechezkel, brought up some Theater Kid Past stuff and compared him to Arthur Miller. It makes sense that you would maybe not remember that because it's been almost a year. Yes. (laughs) So, do you mind if I walk us through it? Please do. So, Yechezkel up to this point has been setting up, like, there's going to be this Gog from Magog who musters all of the armies against you, like, all of the people who have ever hated you and wanted to destroy you, and is going to be a really big one. Literally everybody's going to be there. And when Gog sets foot on the soil of Israel, God's going to get angry. And there's going to be a terrible earthquake. And the fish and birds and beasts and creepy crawlies and humans are all going to quake. Mountains, which may here be related to Gog, shall be overthrown. Cliffs shall topple. And then, interesting thing here, I will then summon the sword against him throughout my mountains, and every man's sword shall be turned against his brother. That seems not ideal. No, not ideal. Mostly for the invading army is what I'm getting, but Mm -hmm. also potentially for the ones being invaded. The text seemed a little ambiguous on that to me, but... Right? And I think the thing with empires, and especially like... North Atlantic Treaty Organizations and such, is that the bigger and more inertial they get, the harder they fall and the more 
creaky they are and like ineffective. Are you positing Gog and Magog, as I suppose the land and Gog as the person, as one of those empires or being symbolic of those empires? Yeah, I think so. Because the idea here is that everybody's being brought together to go crush Yisrael. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think of like entities that do that stuff for, you know, such spurious and self-serving, ridiculous reasons, and basically I got NATO. Okay. Why? What do you mean? I feel like I'm missing a connection here. I mean, the United States just got out of a two-decades-long war in Afghanistan. Totally. And is basically back to square zero? Except for the slaughter of millions of people. So, like... And we got the whole world to join us on that one. Mm. Sure. So I think it's a similar thing here, where, like, the individual people who make up this coalition of greedy major powers all have their self-serving desires, and they end up crumbling apart. Every man's sword is turned against his brother. He's punished with pestilence and with bloodshed and rain, hailstones, and sulfurous... Okay, maybe not the... Well, anyway. Yeah, like, his hordes and the many peoples with him just kind of fall apart. So, immortal here, I think it's Yechezkel, is being told to prophesy against Gog and say... Hey, Gog, Hashem is going to deal with you, and you're going to be turned around and driven on, which is, like, maybe drawn out by guerrilla tactics. Your bow will be stricken from your left hand, and I will loosen the arrows from your right hand. So basically, like, no matter the weapons you have, you'll be disarmed, Mm. and you shall fall on the mountains, and I will give you as food to carry on birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field, which Yechezkel is a goth kid. Sure. Right? Yeah. Are you having different readings on this sort of stuff? Were other things coming up for you? You know, one of the things that I was puzzling through is Mm. the significance of this earthquake in particular, Mm. I don't believe that, like, this part of the world is generally very prone to earthquakes. (laughs) But I grew up in a place that was designed for earthquakes. Oh, yeah. Because there were more earthquakes. And so one of the things I was thinking about is the ways in which, like, earthquakes are terrible. Absolutely. You know, when they're bad. But how harmful an earthquake is is mostly not directly proportionate to how high on the Richter scale an earthquake is, right? Mm. But to how much the infrastructure is built for earthquakes. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. So like in recent years, Haiti has been really hurt by earthquakes in a way that California has not been even though Haiti has not gotten significantly worse earthquakes. Mm. It just is a place that has been much more historically devastated by colonialism and has Mm -hmm. fewer resources. And, you know, where I grew up, I remember learning about, like, 
when they build skyscrapers in California, like they build them with counterweights at the top of them so that when an earthquake hits, something swings in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And still, like the type of earthquake that is happening here where literal mountains are overthrown, as it said, like even your relatively earthquake resilient building tactics can't Mm -hmm. necessarily make you immune to that. So I'm thinking about as we live in a world of climate apocalypse also. Yeah. And as this is really explicitly a thing describing the end of days, Jews don't tend to think about the end of days all that much. Like it's not our focus. (laughs) And we don't talk about Gog and Magog all that much. But, you know, like we live in a world of climate apocalypse Mm -hmm. that people are talking about more explicitly. So to me, it feels like both a reminder that like we can build for disaster and like building for disaster really does change the human cost of disaster. Mm. And we can only build for disaster so much if the disaster is really overpowering. Yeah. So to hold both of those truths at once of like as climate change continues to happen like it's on us to both build things that are really able to deal with the reality of the world we live in and to know that like we'll also have to deal with disasters that we can't quite fully control for so i guess that's a thing that i was thinking about as you know people have thought lots of times through history that this is Gog and Magog now for real this time. And so like, I don't want to say like, it's climate change, but I do want to say that there is maybe an offering and possibility to think about like, what would it mean to treat it as if it was climate change? And then Mm -hmm. if it wasn't be like, well, at least we built things that were more earthquake safe than we would have otherwise. Right. (laughs) Also, I will note that the Arabia plate and Africa plate come together with a transform boundary in Eretz Israel. Oh, cool. So probably there are earthquakes. Cool. That's not a thing I knew about. Thank you for telling me. Yes. I also don't know to what extent there are earthquakes in that part of the Middle East. So if anybody is a tectonic expert, do let us know. We won't put it on an episode, but we will tweet it out. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, ooh, absolutely. So yeah, this like broken army is lying in an open field. There's a fire against Magog and against those who dwell secure in the coastlands. And there's a bit about like making my holy name known among my people Yisrael, which is a thing that has come up a lot, I think especially in Torah, but we've seen it a couple times in Nevi'im as well. Just the idea of saving face amongst the peoples of the world Mm. and making sure that the, quote, chosen people, end quote, aren't left high and dry. Mm. The one that comes to mind is the people are complaining in the wilderness about like, oh, why were we brought here to die when we could have just died back in Egypt and not had to do all this running? And Moshe is like... God, I do just want to point out that everybody's going to totally clown on you if you let everybody die. So please don't. That is to say, Yechezkel 39.7 is very much in a long Jewish tradition. 
And then the inhabitants of the cities of Yisrael will go out and make fires and feed them with the weapons. That is, the weapons carried by the, like, ridiculously huge coalition army. And so, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, they shall use them as fuel for seven years. Which is so long. So long, yes. Which really, like, puts into context the ecological devastation wrought by military preparedness. Like, so many resources are put into making it possible for people to kill other people slightly more efficiently. And all of those resources are just there. They're swords that you can beat them into plowshares, but... For now, they're swords, and it takes so much effort to beat them into plowshares. Yeah, and it took so much effort to make them into swords in the first place. Uh Uh-huh, effort that could have been put into making plowshares. It's one of those things about, like, actually, rather than, like, being like, I recycled it, it's fine. What if you just consumed fewer things in the first place? Mm Mm-hmm. Which I say mostly to mean as, like, large-scale, not to be, like, individual people. It is your fault. Mm -hmm. I've talked about how a lot of my formative media references are tactical games. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of Civilization 2, where one of the mechanics is global warming. Like, as your cities get bigger and involve more high-technology consumers, the planet just starts, like turning forests into jungle and plains into swamps. Mm. It's harder to live in that world. And so usually what I do is build a gigantic army of engineers. Also, this is a game where most of the victories are military. So like Uh I do have a huge army and I feel bad about that. But even more so, you need to invest in the people to turn things back, shore things up, make sure that the greenhouse gas levels in the world are decreased and we just don't do that yeah worst timeline i also think about this one forever war scenario that somebody accidentally or on purpose set up in civ 2 where there were just these three nations that were forever at war with each other and like The planet is continuing to fall apart, and every turn is devoted to making stealth bombers that get blown up by stealth fighters, and all of the resources of the world get put into war, and nothing ever changes. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah, and so this is envisioning a future where things do change, where all these armies fall apart and they leave behind their things that can be turned into fuel or, I don't know, their Humvees that you can live inside of or whatever. And, like, instead of gathering firewood in the fields or cutting any in the forests, you use the weapons as fuel for your fires. You recycle the things that were wasted in the first place. Right. It's almost a, hey, take that money that you're sending every year constantly to the military and to ICE and to the police and just put it into useful things for your communities instead of things that hurt your communities. And uh, maybe good things would happen. Yeah. So on that day, Hashem will assign to Gog a burial site there in Yisrael. And all of these people who came and tried to conquer and died, 
They're just going to be buried in a valley of, like, dead soldiers. And it says, it shall block the path of travelers, Hmm. which is interesting. I don't know if that's a specific thing about the valley of the travelers, or if it's, like, people won't be able to come here without remembering... There were great battles fought here, but it wasn't the battles that were great. It was the extent of the devastation that was great. I'm thinking about, like, designing nuclear storage facilities for thousands of years in the future. Just like, this is not a place of honor. Mm. And you should know that and not want to go exploring here. Do you think that's a fair reading and reference and stuff? Yeah, I was double checking this and it's Rashi who says... It'll stop because there will be corpses. And so people who see them will have to stop and bury them. And also because they'll smell it. And I think that goes along well with what you were saying in terms of like, if a place has been a battlefield really recently, you got to honor that. It's like, you know, even just in small things. Like when I was in New York, the first Mm -hmm. time I went to Stonewall, I stumbled upon it really accidentally. And I just kind (laughs) of looked up and I was like, that's a place with a lot of rainbows. (laughs) And only after realized where I was. And I just like the idea that we mark the places where things have happened that are key to understanding the recent past. And that affects the progress of anybody who goes through that area. Yeah. Love that. So everybody's going to spend seven months burying all the dead people in order to cleanse the land. You know, you've already got all your firewood taken care of. Presumably there were huge supply trains in order to feed all these people. So you probably got food taken care of. And you're just going to spend seven months working to make sure that, you know, this isn't a devastated wasteland, that everybody is put to rest where we don't have to touch dead bodies just walking around where you know people can walk through fields without mines going off yeah good and important (laughs) yeah and in fact there shall be men appointed to serve permanently to traverse the land and bury any invaders who remain above ground in order to cleanse it so like even after everybody has you know gone through that path of travelers and buried all of the soldiers like still you'll have to send people out to make sure that none of these corpses remain above ground everything is put where it should be We diffuse all of the ordnance that is, you know, someday going to blow someone up. What do you make of the instructions that that area will be called the Valley of Gog's Multitude? There was something really smart that I had to say, but... Oh, here we go. The last line here is, There shall also be a city named Multitude, and thus the land shall be cleansed. Uh Uh-huh. And that city is Hamona. And the Valley of Gog's Multitude is Gehamongog. Okay. What does that signify to you? So there's a sense where, like, Gog's Multitude is this horrifying horde of people who come together for all their selfish reasons just to dunk on some folks. 
and we're reclaiming that. We're saying there's going to be a city named Multitude, a city called Abundance, Wealth, Crowd, just like a lot. (laughs) And so it's changing this thing of horror into this thing of a future. And we know that there's precedent for something that a lot is a sign of honor, right? Because we had it even in the Parsha, B'zotah Bracha, <laughs> that Ephraim and Manasseh will have many people, mm. and that's a sign that they're especially valued. Yeah, I think I would like to posit that there can be a city named Multitude, and it can be surrounded by the graves of soldiers who died fighting each other and from being sick and overheated in a foreign land. Uh Uh-huh. And those two things can be, in the minds of the people, unrelated. There can be the idea that, oh, there were all of these armies that died when they tried to do a conquering. We should remember that. But also the city's name can be multitude, and it becomes more the name of the city than the name of the graves. Are you suggesting, in essence, that all of these people died... And they were like, well, that's terrible. And then they named their city Pluralism. Wow. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) I mean. Okay. When you think of New York City, do you think of the County York in England? Not usually. No, it's completely unrelated. New York has become its own thing. And similarly, you can have a city named Multitude after, like, this big tumult of a grave. And eventually it becomes a different meaning of Hamon. Abundance, wealth, or great number. Mm. Eventually it becomes the city itself. Okay. All right. And I think we can do both of those. Remember that there is nuclear waste buried here, but also build a future that doesn't rely on the same wastefulness of the past. Mm. I'm still hearing that we named our city pluralism, but that's okay. Fine. (laughs) Fine. You know what? We named our city pluralism. And, you know, in a hundred years, people are going to forget that pluralism meant facile inclusion that makes people feel tokenized. And instead, it means a place where everybody lives together and honors each other. Boom. Wow. (laughs) Some strong opinions here in our concluding episode. Okay. So I think we should do two segments from here on out right? I believe so. We should do Raiding God's Writing, in which we traverse the country making our rounds and come back with some scale to erect a marker upon this Haftarah. And then finally, we'll conclude with some wrap-up reflections and memories of our last two years. Yeah, we'd love that. Jazz, what are you naming the city of this Haftarah? And will it mean the same thing in a hundred (laughs) years? Nothing means the same thing in a hundred (laughs) years. I would like to name the city of this Haftarah. I did give you a really difficult one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I vote that we name it... 
high tide because okay. it is about being overwhelmed by waves, but not so much that you can't get through it, but mm-hmm. also that in some respects things come in cycles, and in some respects there are also things you can't really feasibly fight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Love. Yes. In this Haftarah, the House of Israel spends seven months of burying in order to cleanse the land. And Mm -hmm. for this Haftarah, what does this land cleanse and how long does it take to cleanse it? Hmm. I think it cleanses preventable disease by making sure that there's a distribution network for food and shelter and just shutting everything down for like two months, like actually, (laughs) so that you can get rid of all the things that we've just been living with for years. Whether that's, you know, a novel coronavirus or influenza or measles, just all of the preventable things. Like you need to gather up all of those shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears and use them as fuel because we have enough to make sure that everybody lives an okay life. And we don't have enough to keep going as we are. And I like how this Parsha has kind of a radical vision of, you know, when something big happens, you stop and you deal with it. Mm. Life still does go on, but you do need to take seven years to just burn all of the military equipment. You need to take seven months to just look for all of the people who have died. Right. And to make sure that they're known about, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, preventable disease is the thing that the nation is burying. Good. So it's been two years. It's been two years since we started this show. This is the 101st episode that we've made, which is wild to me. It's the 100th in our regular cycle that wasn't a pilot. (laughs) Hey, our pilot stands up. I mean, yeah, you're right. It is our 100th weekly episode. Yeah. Which is just wild. (laughs) Yeah. Can't believe that we've done this for two years. Jazz, when you think about Torah, what's like one big thing that stands out to you that you've like taken away from us reading through it? One of the things I took away from it, which I think is so simple, but also is really super true for me, is that (laughs) we really don't read most of it. (laughs) But in particular, we really don't read most of the Tanakh. Like, Mm -hmm. the communities I grew up in didn't teach me most of it. The communities I've been in as an adult mostly don't. Yeah. And it is possible, definitely, there are some Jewish communities which do, but I've never been in them. Yeah. And, like, we read selections from Nevi'im. We did not read the entirety of Prophets. And we didn't read anything from Ketuvim. All of the writings, like Shir Hashirim and Job and, like, a lot of things that people kind of vaguely know about, but haven't actually, like, for the most part, dug deep into. Right. And so part of 
what I feel like I really got out of this was you can just do that. (laughs) It's there for you, even if you weren't taught it. And like, I know that sounds simple, but the corollary to it Mm -hmm. is like, there's a lot and it is hard to do on your own. Like I wouldn't have been able to do it on my own to like read it meaningfully and process it meaningfully. And so on the one hand, like, there's so much and there's so much richness and there's so much stuff to do and you can look at commentaries and commentaries can really enhance things and also you can just do it on your own and get started like there aren't real rules that you have to obey there's no wrong way to read it there are ways that are differently rooted in different kinds of traditions and Mm -hmm. i care about those but fundamentally the thing i care about more is like we get to read it and engage with it, and it's ours. Yeah. And honestly, highly recommend getting a Haruta. Like, I form very strong opinions and then hold on to them until somebody gives me an argument that I like better, and then those are my strong opinions. And uh-huh. if I didn't have Jazz being like, well, here's the Hasidic context, and like, here's a subversive way that we can read it that isn't Pishat, but it's actually really interesting. And I never would have that if I were just reading this on my own. If I just tried to plod through all of Tanakh alone. Also, it's more fun and your engagement with Judaism, however you choose to do it, should be fun and also meaningful. Like there's lots of different ways to engage with Judaism, but I hope that people can do so in a way that is like meaningful to them. Like I hope Mm -hmm. that that would be a takeaway for people who aren't us that like you have a lot of options and a lot of them are good ones. Yeah. The love, what's something that you learned or gained via the process of making this podcast? So before having read Torah, and especially like growing up in a Christian normative culture, I thought it was kind of funny that Perchik got a socialist reading from a story and was teaching that. Uh, Perchik, for those who haven't listened to our entire podcast, uh, the character from Fiddler on the Roof who is a scholar and also a socialist. And having read through all of this with you and like tried to find meanings centered around justice. They're there. They're there, like in the text sometimes and right next to the text other times. Like it's not a fluke that Perchik found a... socialist reading in the Yaakov, Leah, and Rachel story. Like, this is just how you can read things. The story of the exodus from Mitzrayim is one of collective bargaining. Right. Is it also of other things? It's also of other things. (laughs) There are as many things. (laughs) It doesn't get translated as just instruction. It's instructions. Right. But yeah, the fact that there is justice baked into Torah and also really strident injustice, like there's Mm -hmm. still slavery. You know, every single patriarch and matriarch is kind of a douche, but there are also redeeming parts and there's a tendency to strive for justice, even if that's not what's achieved in any one person's lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. 
So don't have heroes, do have ideals, and we can make a better world are like the three big things that I took from Torah. Do you have any big takeaways from Nevi'im from the readings that we've done in the Haftarah portions over this last year? I would say one of the cool things about engaging with Nevi'im, and I think I have a lot more to learn about Nevi'im, Mm -hmm. is that I gained a much deeper appreciation for prophets, not as like people telling the future (laughs) or whatever, but as fundamentally societal outcasts who nevertheless believed it was crucially important to speak truth to power even if they didn't think it would work and even if it made them sometimes unhappy and sometimes frustrated and sometimes really personally invested that they were people whose lives we may or may not remember but we do remember their words Mm -hmm. and that the thing they thought was important was to speak up about treating people well, Mm -hmm. about not relying on empire, about not prioritizing idols or wealth, and instead about justice and love and loyalty and community. And I didn't always agree with the things that they said, (laughs) but I saw that they were struggling to try and build a better world. And that is the things that I want to strive for, is to strive to build a better world alongside comrades who I may or may not always agree with on everything, but who I know are also really in the process of trying. Yeah. And I really also like that the Profits are organized around people who are not necessarily wealthy, are not necessarily centerpieces of the story. Like, it's so much easier to imagine writing yourself into history, to imagine, you know, your prophets as trans people and queer people and disabled people and people of color and, you know, all sorts of different marginalized groups. Yeah to be prophets speaking out for a better world rather than imagining them as kings and judges and patriarchs or even matriarchs sometimes. Mm -hmm. And like the authority comes from the things that they're saying, I feel like. So we don't deify Yeshiahu or Yechezkel. It's not that their personality is making the things that they say true. It's that they are saying true things and you can judge that as listeners yeah and part of what makes a prophet a real prophet is that the things that they say are true not in Mm. terms of like on the fourth day this literally came (laughs) to pass you know but in the like yeah there should be justice yeah lilav are there any other takeaways that you had from nevi'im that you'd like to lift up Yeah, I am donning my David Byrne cosplay, which is a gigantic suit, and I'm really sweating, and just saying, same as it ever was, same as it ever was, because what I've seen from Nevi'im is that in generation after generation, there were these people saying, hey, we messed up, we can do better, let's do better. And in generation after generation, people keep messing up, but like... We sure do. (laughs) You know, you've got to take the admonitions of that, but also not give in to despair, 
to take consolation and engage in teshuva and really try this time, you know? Try for the heart of it. Like, it's not that we're not sacrificing correctly or it's not that we're not treating our slaves right, I guess. It's that we shouldn't have slaves. It's that when we sacrifice, it should be because we mean it and not just because it's the done thing. We got to try for a better world. So that's what I got from Nivim. <laughs> that's lovely. Thank you. Jazz, can you take us to the close? Yeah. Thanks for listening to Kosher Queers. I'm not going to ask you to support us on Patreon at the moment because I think we're done for the foreseeable future. But if you liked what you heard, you can still give us a tip on our Ko-fi, which is at ko-fi.com slash kosherqueers. That's not just going to pad out our wallets. We have annual domain renewal fees, monthly hosting fees for the audio Like, really, if you give us tips, you will make sure that Kosher Queers continues to be accessible for years to come. Absolutely. Thank you for adding that. Also, we're now finished, and I hope that we're a resource for you. So please do continue to spread the word about Kosher Queers. Tell your friends, tell your people at shul, tell your Jewish list serve and discord server and your rabbi, anybody you think would be interested. Use us as a flirtation technique, frankly. Oh, please. (laughs) We did? So, um... Anyway, you can also find out more information about our podcast, including bios for our team and links to our social media at kosherqueers.gay. And as always, our artwork is by the talented Lior Gross. Our music is courtesy of the fabulous band Brivilla, whose work you can find on Bandcamp. Go buy their albums. They're great. Our sound production this week is done by our excellent audio editor, Ezra Faust. Could not have done it without you, Ezra. Thank you for getting us through two years of a podcast. And thanks also to Jazz Twersky and JJ Jensen, who make sure that every episode gets transcribed. You can find JJ at Pants Possum on Twitter, and you can find the link to the transcripts that JJ writes and Jazz proofreads in our episode descriptions at kosherqueers.gay, which will continue to be up for you even if we don't make new episodes. Yeah, that's the plan. I'm Jazz Twersky, and I will probably be back eventually at Word Nerd Knitter <laughs> on Twitter occasionally, so if you'd like to find me there. I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Massachusetts people. I'm Lula Varno, and you can send me questions that won't be read on air at Palmliker on Twitter. I'm also at Spacetruck6 for my personal account, but like, eh, it's a personal account, you know? And I recorded this audio on the traditional lands of the Wapekute Dakota, who are doing a lot of activity against Line 3. Stop Line 3. Yeah. Have a lovely queer Jewish day. Have a lovely queer Jewish day. This week's gender is 3.0 plus 1.0 thrice upon a puberty. 
This week's pronouns are Have a lovely queer Jewish day. Have a lovely queer Jewish day. This week's gender is 3.0 plus 1.0, thrice upon a puberty. This week's pronouns are...